Good morning, church family. So good to see all of you here today. Today we are finishing our sermon series that we have been calling Faithful. Over the past three weeks, we've explored faithfulness, not from the standpoint of what it means for us to be faithful, although that's really important. We've been talking about God's faithfulness, which is the bedrock on which our whole faith stands. Because your faith is only as valuable as the object of your faith is reliable. So we can put our faith in all kinds of things that don't last. Scripture calls those things sinking sand. But thankfully, when we put our faith in God, we'll be able to stand on solid ground because God is completely faithful. Now, each week in this series, we've been talking about a specific way that God is faithful. So far, we've said that God is faithful to forgive the sinful, to rescue the hurting, and to transform the willing. Our focus has been on the ways that God is faithful here and now in our life on earth. And in fact, last week, John showed us this timeline slide, which shows our life as followers of Jesus divided into three periods. All big words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So justification is that moment when we are made right with God. Sanctification is our lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. And then glorification is the final display of God's faithfulness, which will be in the last day. And that's what we are talking about today. So scripture tells us a lot about what that will be like, but it doesn't tell us everything. So we're going to lean into what it does say and then trust God to guide us through the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is a really important topic for two main reasons. The first reason is hope. When we lose a loved one, as some in our church have done recently, and all of us will at some point, the grief and the sense of loss can be so heavy. And sometimes it can feel like we've lost our way or even lost our footing. But God is faithful to the very end. The hope of the resurrection can give us solid ground to stand on, even in our grief and pain. Now, the second reason I think this topic is so important is clarity. In our culture and even in the church, there are vastly different ideas about what happens after we die. And this is understandable. Some scriptures that talk about our future are metaphorical. These can feel like, as one scholar said, signposts pointing into a mist. But there are some points like the resurrection where we actually can find a little bit more clarity in Scripture. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 815, so you can open that up there. Now this chapter is one of the longest discussions that Paul ever wrote on a topic. So instead of reading through it all at once up front, we're going to hit the highlights throughout the sermon. And as we explore this chapter, we're going to see the beautiful promises that our faithful God has in store for us and how that impacts the life that we live here and now. Now, the good news is that death is not the end. Death may pack a pretty good punch, but death does not have the last word. Remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to many people. And then Acts 1 tells us that before a crowd of witnesses, he ascended into heaven. It must have been a pretty impressive sight, right? So much so that the angels said to the crowd in Acts 1, Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven 
will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So one day, in God's perfect timing, Jesus will physically, visibly, personally, and gloriously return to earth. Revelation 21 says that God's dwelling place will then be here on earth with us. And then Jesus is going to undo the effects of sin and death and remake a new heaven and a new earth. The dead will be raised just like Jesus on Easter morning, but this time for everyone who follows Jesus. So when Paul explains this to the Christians at Corinth, some of them have a problem with this. Their culture was really heavily influenced by Greek philosophers who thought that the body was evil, that it, the body was a prison that was trapping the soul, which they thought was immortal and good. And this means that they have a real problem with the idea of resurrection, the idea that our bodies will be physically raised. And honestly, they know what happens to a dead body. It can start to stink and rot. And the idea of those coming back to life is too much for them. Now, they wouldn't have seen the video, but I'm thinking they may have been picturing something like Michael Jackson's hit song, Thriller, the video with the rotting corpses rising out of the grave. It's too gross for me to show you a clip, but you can get the idea. In verse 35, Paul is responding to their skepticism. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, Paul immediately puts them at ease. This will not be a zombie apocalypse. At the last day, when Christ returns, we will be made new. If you're taking notes, that's your first point. We will be made new. To explain it, Paul uses several different analogies. A seed, different kinds of animals, sun, moon, and stars, and then Adam from the book of Genesis. Now we're going to focus on the first one, the seed. Look with me at verses 36 to 38. How foolish, Paul says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, I'm not much of a gardener, but I remember in preschool or kindergarten, each one of my kids at some point bringing home a seed of one kind or another. Seems like a lot of times it was a lima bean, right? The seed itself is dull and lifeless. It isn't much to look at. There aren't very many signs of life. And I typically didn't have much hope for anything to happen. But then my sweet little child, full of hope, would go and plant that seed in the ground. And an astonishing thing would happen. Something new begins to grow out of it. Of course, it doesn't come to life all by itself, but God gives it life. But here's another astonishing thing. Instead of being an exact replica of the seed that it came out of, it becomes something much more beautiful, the plant that comes out of it. Think about it. There's a tremendous difference between a tulip bulb, like you see on the screen, and the beautiful flower that blooms from it, right? Or between a kernel of wheat and the plant that grows out of that, or a strawberry seed and the plant with delicious strawberries that it becomes. So there's continuity between the plant and the seed. One grows out of the other. But there's also transformation. The new life is much more different, much more glorious, um, much more useful for its new purpose than what came out of it. And Paul says that that transformation comes from death and God giving it new life. Paul goes on to talk about different kinds of animals, the sun, moon, and stars, and how each has a body that's uniquely adapted to its environment. Think about it. A star is not going to shine underwater, and a dolphin is not going to last long up in the air. 
The bodies that we have right now, even though they are subject to death, are suited for the world that we currently inhabit. But they'll be buried when their work here is done so that God can remake them into something new and glorious for God's new heaven and new earth. Now, isn't that beautiful? Whatever frustrations you have with the limitations of your body, any differences or diseases, they will be transformed into something new and wonderful at the resurrection. And Paul says that just like a seed, the body that is sown imperishable is, no, sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Now, in the last analogy, Paul says that the first created human, Adam, set the pattern for everyone who was born after that. And in the same way, Christ will become the new prototype at the resurrection. I like the way the message paraphrases verse 48 and 49. It says, the first man was made out of earth, and people since then are earthy. The second man was made out of heaven, and people now can be heavenly. In the same way that we've worked from our earthly origins, let's embrace our heavenly ends. I love that. In the same way that we've worked from our earthly origins, let's embrace our heavenly ends. Now, we're going to come back to that idea in a bit because Paul is setting the stage for how the resurrection should impact our lives now in the present. Now, if you're reading through our growth guide, you saw this week in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now think about Jesus' resurrected body. When Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it took them a while to recognize him, but eventually they did. There was something recognizable that resembled the Jesus they knew before. And yet this risen Jesus had a body that could appear through locked doors, disappear again, sometimes be recognized, sometimes not, and then finally ascend into heaven. Now, our resurrection will be a bodily resurrection, but our bodies, just like a seed, will undergo a marvelous transformation. We're going to be made new, and it's not just a physical transformation that's needed. If we're going to live in this new resurrection community where God physically dwells among us, we're going to need spiritual transformation too. And for that to happen, Jesus has to overcome our bondage to sin and to death. The victory is won, but not yet fulfilled. But when Jesus returns at the final resurrection, we will be set free. We will be set free. Now, Paul starts out this next section by letting the Corinthians know that he's about to say something really important. Look with me at verse, starting in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable is been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul here is sharing a mystery that has been specially revealed to him by God. We will not all sleep. Sleep is Paul's metaphor for death. But we will all be changed. See, the first Christians 2,000 years ago strongly believed that Jesus' return would happen in their lifetimes. So the believers who have not yet died when Christ returns will experience direct change. For those who had already died, their body will undergo a comparable change. Now, I bet some of you are wondering about this period of sleep that Paul mentions. So let's take a quick time out to address this because it can be pretty confusing. Paul is basically saying that there are two phases to eternal life. The first one happens immediately after we die, before Christ's return and our resurrection to the new heaven and the new earth. And what is this first phase like? Well, on the one hand, there's a lot of mystery about it. That's why Paul uses the word mystery, right? But on the other hand, I think there's a few things that we can hold on to. Do you remember what Jesus said to the thief next to him on the cross? Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's what I take from that. First of all, it happens immediately, today. And we won't be alone. We'll be with Jesus. And then finally, it's going to be amazing. Jesus calls it paradise. And then after this period, Paul says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, a trumpet will signal Christ's arrival, the dead will rise, and we will be transformed. We'll no longer have bodies that are subject to death and decay, but we will be clothed with imperishable bodies fit for the resurrection and the life to come. Now, at this point, the words of the prophets come alive for Paul. Picturing himself already in that final state, Paul quotes the prophecies that will be fulfilled. Look at verse 54. With Isaiah 25, 8 in mind, Paul says triumphantly that death has been swallowed up in victory. This is the complete destruction and defeat of death. Then in verse 55, he paraphrases Hosea 13, 14, and he mocks death as having already been defeated and lost its sting, like a scorpion who's lost its stinger, or a snake with no teeth or no venom. The promises of Revelation 21 will finally have come true. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more death. And the way that Christ has accomplished this is by setting us free from our bondage to sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So thanks be to God, Jesus gives us victory over sin. Now right now, Christ helps us in our battle against temptation and sin. But in the resurrection, the victory will be full and final. 2 Timothy 1.10 rejoices that Jesus, our Savior Jesus Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality. So friends, this is incredible news. In our fight against temptation and sin, one day, uh, our fight against the powers and the principalities of this world, against brokenness and death, that fight will be over. The victory will be ours in Christ, and we will be set free. The Duke of Wellington, the great English general, he wrote home after the Battle of Waterloo. They won this battle, but with many casualties and his own friends among them. And so he wrote, believe me, nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. Think about it. Usually in this world, victories in battle come at great cost. You may have defeated the enemy, but you've lost friends and 
Many have been wounded. Even those soldiers who come home in one piece are exhausted and traumatized by what they've gone through. And Christ's victory did come at a great cost. But it wasn't a cost to us. He paid the price for us at the cross. And when Christ comes again, as one preacher said, the victory will be utterly complete and not one soldier among the hosts of the Lord will fail to answer to his name when the role is called. Isn't that beautiful? We're not there yet, friends. Today we grieve the loss of our loved ones because they are no longer with us. But on that day, when the dead rise and the whole company of believers are gathered together, we will enjoy eternal life together in the presence of our Lord Jesus. And then as the hymn says, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We'll sing and shout the victory. Well, now, as promised, we come to the final verse of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives a charge to the church. Remember the version of verse 49 that we read earlier that said, let us embrace our heavenly ends. Paul's given the Corinthians a lot of theology about the resurrection and about the future. But it's because it can and should make a tremendous difference in the way we live right now. So now in verse 58, Paul lets them know how these resurrection promises impact our lives today. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now when a verse opens with the word therefore, you know that it's the logical result of everything that came before it. So Paul's been talking about something a long time now. When something's a long way off, different people approach it different ways. When my son Porter was in preschool, he w- when he was excited about something, he would ask us almost every day when that thing was coming up. And I don't know why, but it seemed like our answer was always Tuesday. We weren't making it up. It just seemed like a lot of exciting things happened on Tuesday. And soon that became his answer for everything, not just things that he was excited about, but things that he thought would really probably never happen. Porter, can I have a hug? On Tuesday... When are you going to pick up your room? Tuesday. (laughs) And now it's a running joke in our family. If we are putting something off or if something feels like a long way away, it's on Tuesday. And I'm guessing for the Corinthians and for most of us, this subject feels a lot like that Tuesday. It feels like a long way off. And maybe it feels like something we're we're not going to think about on a weekly basis, right? But Paul says that it matters a great deal for our lives right now. Therefore, he says, in light of this amazing hope that we have in the resurrection, stand firm, Paul says. Don't be so fickle. Get a grip. That's my paraphrase. In other words, be steadfast in your faith. That's the first part of Paul's church, the church. Be steadfast in your faith. See, some Christians had come to believe that complete victory in Christ was to be expected right now rather than later. And they'd come close to giving up when they saw how that had worked out. Life was still hard. They still experienced persecution. They still battled temptation. They still were uh, succumbing to illness or the loss of loved ones. But instead, Paul says, the ultimate victory is yet to come. Easter is like an announcement of all that awaits us when Christ returns again. So whatever glimpses we see of victory in this life over sin and death, those are just the tiniest hint of what we will experience in the last day. So as you walk through hard times now, don't give up because this is not the end of the story. On that day when Christ 
returns and resurrects us, thanks be to God, our victory will be complete. Maybe you think of that day as the end, and sometimes we do refer to it as the last day. But friends, what if we actually saw that day as the beginning? My preaching professor told the story of a man who had a long, hard illness. And on his last day alive, someone came to him and said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm almost well. He didn't see himself as nearing the end. He was moving toward a beginning, the beginning of a new life that was infinitely more glorious and more powerful and full of the radiance of our King Jesus. So Paul tells the church to stand firm in their faith because we are heading towards a glorious new beginning. And then he says, be diligent in your work. Be diligent in your work. John said last week that our life on earth is not like a job interview where we have to wait and see if we will have eternal life with Christ. Following Jesus assures us of resurrection and eternal life with King Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and kick up our feet and do whatever we want until that day comes. Because what we do in this life matters a lot. We have work to do. We are God's ambassadors We're sent out as God's representatives to our community and world. And God has called us to do kingdom work until that day when Christ comes again in power and glory. Now, every now and then we like to recommend to you a book that we found helpful. And one that's been pivotal to me over the last 15 years um, to help me understand the scriptures about heaven and resurrection is N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. It looks like this if you want to add it to your Amazon account. It's really good. But I want to share with you one thing that N.T. Wright says in that book. He says, people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. So friends, let's be diligent. Let's be unstoppably motivated to work for God's kingdom in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our community and world. Remember how Paul's analogy of the seed tells us that there's some sort of continuity between our present world and the world to come? When Paul says that your labor will not be in vain, he's hinting that it's not just our bodies that are the seeds for the life to come. What we do in this life plants seeds that will bear eternal fruit as well. As Paul says, we can be confident that our work has a purpose. Our labor will not be in vain. When you show love to a family who's receiving gifts from the Christmas store. When you build a house for an immigrant family in South Texas. When you tell someone about all that Jesus has done and is doing in your life. When you welcome newcomers to our community and teach them English. When you care for God's creation. When you invest in the lives of children and students. You are planting gospel seeds. You're doing kingdom work that shows people around you a glimpse of the goodness and kindness of our God. And what a compelling witness that is to those who don't yet know Jesus. If a church is doing all these things, then suddenly the good news that Jesus is Lord and that his kingdom has begun makes a lot of sense. So friends, let's pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your beautiful promise that this world is not the end. Lord, we're grateful for the promise that one day you will return to earth. Lord, that you will restore all things, that you will raise us again to bodily new life where you will physically dwell with us. 
And that on that day, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more illness, no more death. Lord, we do pray that this good news would make us unstoppably motivated to do your kingdom work today, here and now, because we know that our labor will not be in vain. Lord, would you help us to plant gospel seeds for your kingdom that will grow into something beautiful in this life and in the life to come. We're so grateful, Lord, for your sacrifice on the cross that has made all of this possible and your power in the resurrection. May we trust you. May we stand firm as we wait for that day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.